Hello and welcome to another episode of Scrubcast. I'm Eamon Ammer, and I'm pleased to have Professor Manus with me again here at the Institute of Transplantation in Newcastle. It's great to have you back on Scrubcast, Professor. Thank you for uh, inviting me back. I love being here, especially in my office. <laughs> it is your office. So, Prof, today we'll be talking about colorectal liver metastases. Now, we know that this is one of the top three leading causes of cancer death in the Western world. And 50% of patients with colorectal cancer at some point in their lifetime will develop colorectal liver metastases. And I remember you once telling me that it is actually, in most cases, the liver metastases that kill patients rather than the actual primary. Yeah, well, that's, that's absolutely correct. But it does depend on, on lots of things, the volume of disease, how much liver has been taken over by the disease, and very often... Uh, local recurrence after the primary resection doesn't lead to death. It only leads to death if there are liver metastases. So you may get lots of local problems, but actually death is associated with the development of metastatic disease. And unfortunately, and I know this number is based on newer treatments available, it's still only 20 to 30% of patients that are deemed resectable on presentation. Yeah, I think the important thing for patients to know is that surgery, resection, is the only, currently still the only curative option to give long-term survival. When we started many, many years ago doing liver resection for colorectal mets, what we used to tell patients was you have about a 60 to 70% chance of having recurrence within the next five years. And of the patients who were who were seen in clinics, we were talking about 10% resectability. So the majority never ever got to surgery. What's happened over the last 10 to 15 years, and if you look at the development of chemotherapy in this disease, the resectability rate has increased at a steady state as new agents have come online, and particularly as the monoclonals came online. And so we're talking about probably the best increase in resectability rate after chemotherapy to 33%. But we probably safely tell patients and teach students that it's about 20% resectability. But you can push it to 30%, depending on each unit. So what is the current survival rate then from colorectal liver metastases with or without surgery? So if you're eligible for resection? I think if you're eligible for resection and you took 100 patients who were eligible for a liver resection, secondary colorectal medicine, and you divide them to those who went to um, went to, on to surgery compared to people who had simply follow-up and looked at the natural history, you'd get less than 5% of patients who were just being followed up surviving five years. Whereas with the resectable patients, you're now getting up to 60%. But I think it's safe to say that most centers are somewhere between 40 and 60%. Our own center in our last audit, our five survivors, 52%. The, the five, 10 years before that was 48%. So that is, is improving. So obviously that does depend on volume of disease, you know, size and number of lesions, but also on whether the tumor is synchronous or metachronous. What's, what's the current definition? of a, a metachronism. Well, the, the definition of metachronous disease is metastasis found in the liver after the primary has been resected. Now, within six months, you could argue that that's synchronous disease. But once it, it's a year or longer, that's metachronous disease. 
And if you look at the papers looking at the difference between synchronous and metaxis disease, that's not really well defined. But I'd say it's safe to say at a year, if you develop lesions after a year, then that's metachronous. And anything before that's probably synchronous. We're seeing in big centers, and I'm sure this is across the country, that majority of patients we're seeing now have got synchronous disease. So they were just undetectable. They were undetectable the before, yeah. Mm-hmm. So the cutoff is one year here in yeah. the definition. Okay. Over the years, we have moved on, haven't we, from the old um, resectability criteria, like the Ekberg criteria. These are now, um, it's, I think it's safe to say, obsolete, where we looked at you know how many lesions there were and what size there were and whether you could get wide margins around them and what the preoperative CEA was. What defines a resectable colorectal liver metastases these days? So, if you have a normal liver, so in other words, not cirrhotic, which is very unusual in colorectal mets, but you can get it, or if it's not been damaged by chemotherapy. Sorry, when you say unusual, it's unusual to have a cirrhotic liver. Yeah, unusual to have c- cirrhotic livers yes. with colorectal metastases mm-hmm. in them. Compared to, obviously, compared to HCC. But if it's not damaged, in other words, it's not been damaged by chemotherapy, or it's not, it hasn't got steatohepatitis, then resectability is defined purely as what you leave behind rather than what you take out. And what you leave behind is called the FLR or the future fun, liver, future liver remnant. remnant. And it was really defined at 25% of the total liver volume. And as chemotherapy has got more aggressive, so that volume has had to slowly go up. So now we're more comfortable with a future liver remnant, which is in the region of 35% if you've got chemotherapy-associated injury to the liver. And we still define resectability as what you leave behind, not what you take out. But having said all that, and you you mentioned the Ekberg criteria, there are lots of criteria that were originally developed. The first person who did liver resection was Blake Cady in the States, their definition of resectability was based on number and size. And if you go back now and look at data on number, there's absolutely no doubt that even if you take out everything and you leave a decent FLR with a decent margin, if you had two lesions versus 10 lesions, patients with 10 lesions do worse long-term. Survival. So it's still important, but it's not a game-changer for whether you get surgery or not. So, are wide resection margins still relevant? Well, I think there was a time when we felt that cytoreduction, debulking most of the disease, wasn't beneficial for patients. And that was an era when the chemotherapy wasn't that good. So, if you were just giving someone five of you and you debulk them, you made no difference to the outcome. But actually, I think now there is evidence growing that debulking surgery is probably beneficial, like it is, for example, in neuroendocrine disease. What I'm not sure we can say is that doing an R2 resection, in other words, cutting into tumor, is beneficial. But having an R1 resection where the margin is less than a millimeter, if you have the ability to give more chemotherapy or ablate the margin, that's still beneficial. And it's important to say that if you have an unresectable primary or extrahepatic disease that's uncontrollable, then obviously that's an yeah. unresectable colorectal metastasis. But the converse is also true. Yeah. E- even if you have multiple uh, extrahepatic mets, but they're controllable, 
then you can still go ahead and... If you can resect them, then you should go ahead and resect them. Mm-hmm. And Dominic Elias showed very nicely that if you can resect all the extrapathic disease, if it's contiguous with the liver meds, if it's in one place, take it out. And again, there's good meta-analyses showing that surgery is still beneficial in those patients. Even though they've got pulmonary mets and you can resect them, the evidence is they do live longer, although it is conflicting and those, all those systematic reviews have got lots of problems with them. I still think if you can get people to surgery, getting to surgery is a benefit for the patient. And just for those who are taking the exam soon, it's just worth noting the European Society of Medical Oncology uh, published guidelines in 2016, which talk about contraindications to colorectal liver metastases based on technical and oncological criteria. So the technical criteria were absolute, for example, if you cannot achieve R0 uh, resection uh, or relative contraindications, for example, if it's going to be a complex procedure to achieve that. Oncological criteria here would be if you had unresectable extrahepatic disease, that's classed as a B1. A B2 would be number of lesions more than five. So again, as you mentioned, Prof, you know, if the number, if the volume of disease is higher. And B3, which is again, you're just going down the ladder of contraindications here, tumor progression. So you've, you've kept an eye on them and the tumor has increased over time. Then again, that's sort of a relative oncological contraindication to uh, resection. Prof, you mentioned the percentage of, of FLR that you would be happy to leave. And this is a common FRCS exam question. I presume it does differ whether you have underlying liver disease or not, you know, cirrhosis, uh, yeah. steatosis. What, what are the percentages? 25% of the liver is normal, absolutely normal. So if someone has, has got, for example, um, hepatic adenoma that you want to resect in a totally normal liver, all you need is 25% to be left behind. And you could safely get away with that. If you've got sinusoidal obstruction syndrome, which looks awful, and it's called the blue liver, it does look awful. That's not as bad as someone's got steatohepatitis. So if you've got sinusoidal obstruction, you want 30 to 35 percent. If you've got steatohepatitis based on a biopsy, then you needing to be very careful about how much you leave behind. And steatohepatitis actually is almost a contraindication to major resection. As opposed to steatosis. Steatosis, simple steatosis is not a contraindication. Actually, the outcome is not a problem. You may get some intraoperative increase in bleeding, but that's about it. Again, a common exam question. So the blue liver and the yellow liver, which chemotherapeutics um, cause it. So uh, oxaloplatin. Oxaloplatin gives you the uh, sinusoidal obstruction. So that's the blue liver. Yeah. And irinotecan would cause steatosis and steatohepatitis. So if you're starting off with someone with a very high BMI and you're giving them fury or irinotecan as a primary, then you could end up producing quite a lot of problems for the patient. And we don't have much control over what happens, what chemotherapy patients get. Um, What we do know is that if you get oxaloplatin first line and you fail and you get irinotecan in second line, the chance you respond is very small. Um, some of the studies showed irinotecan was probably slightly better, so a lot of oncologists will go for irinotecan first. But we try and persuade our oncologists, if someone's got a high BMI, over 35, is probably going to be a big problem for them getting to resection. Okay. So how do we assess the future liver remnant here at the Freeman Hospital, and what options are out there? 
Um, well, we um, there are a number of ways you can do it. You can do it very formally with a formula. The most common formula probably which is used worldwide is was published by Nick Vorte from MD Anderson. So it's based on height and weight and patient's age. And that's still probably the best formula to use. There are other formulas you can use. Um, the Far East formula is also based on height and weight. There's a lot of criticism about the Far East formulas because they, the patients have very, very different body habits. And so the Western countries use a formula that's, that's more heavily based on BMI because patients are bigger. We use uh, a method of measuring perimeter, which is not probably not as accurate, but um, we will use the formula when patients are at the extremes, so someone who's very big or someone who's very small. So this is CT-based volumetry? CT-based volumetry, yeah. What about other techniques like uh, endocyanine green or so, technetium, so for example? Volume is about volume, so mm-hmm. it's about what you can see, and then there's function. Mm-hmm. And volume doesn't always equate to function. So if you've got someone who's had a lot of chemotherapy and they have a very fatty liver, then somehow you need to assess the function. Now, there are a number of ways you can do that. One is with biliary scintigraphy. And that has been very much championed by the Dutch. And it is very useful to do, to do biliary scintigraphy, but you have to be used to do, using it. Um, then the other way is to use function tests where you give the liver some work to do. And one is to use uh, lignocaine, and that's called a MEGX test. Or you can use intestinal green and look at the amount of excretion and the amount of dye that's allowed to be retained and the amount that has to be excreted. And that gives you an idea. But the problem with those tests is that you look, you're still looking at the whole liver. So it's not that accurate, but it gives you an idea. So you said earlier that resectability has increased over the past couple of decades or so, and ultimately survival. Um, what have we done so far? Uh, what methods do we have out there to increase resectability for liver metastases, apart from widening our criteria? Well, other than the chemotherapy, which is making the tumors respond much better than they ever did, growing the FLR, which is done either with portable embolization or using radioembolization. CERT. CERT, yeah. So, portable embolization was described first by the Japanese Makuchi in 1990, particularly for HCC patients, but it was adopted for everything else. That block in the portal vein has about a 70% chance of some response on the other side. The problem with portal embolization, in particular for colorectal mets, and it's not such a problem for some of the other tumors, but for colorectal mets, there's some quite good evidence that it, it stimulates growth of the tumors, and also the hepatotrophic factors that get released increase growth of the tumors, and it does nothing to kill the tumors. Whereas if you're using radioembolization, then you're actually killing the tumor at the same time. So... I'm very in favor of using radioembolization to grow the FLR. It takes longer. The liver is a better quality, and you've treated the tumors. And what's happened is it's, you've caused quite a lot of atrophy of the, the side you want to take out. There are some newer techniques with portal vein embolization, and that's using portal vein embolization with hepatic vein embolization. 
and that's gained quite a lot of traction in certain centers around the world, particularly places like Zurich and the Far East. Um, and I think we, we would we'd start here. You know, we've done one patient so far with good results. Um, the other option is to use this technique called ELPS, which is uh, associating liver partitioning and portal vein ligation for staged hepatectomy. That's a mouthful. That's ALPS. ALPS, yeah. And the thing about ALPS is was it came about serendipitously because someone was doing an operation and the patient didn't, wasn't doing very well. And so they stopped and said, we'll come back another day. And by the time they came back, the remnant liver had grown massively. And that's how it started. For an accident. Yeah. The problem is that ALPS is associated with lots of morbidity. So if you look, there is an, a registry now which is run um, by, uh, initially started by the Spanish, um, but I think it's taken over by Pierre Clavian. This, the registry shows significant morbidity, and there's a, quite a high mortality. So what's come out of the registry is it shouldn't be used for diseases like cholangiocarcinoma. But certainly for colorectal meds, it's probably a good thing if you need it. The question is, do you do it electively or do you use it intraoperatively when you have to make a decision? And doing it electively, I think you do need to be careful. And so there are lots of variations of it now. The original operation was to transect the liver all the way down to the level of the vena cava, ligate the portal vein. The modifications of that have gone through numerous stages where... The resection is only the first centimeter, and the rest is done with ligation. So they're using, a, for example, a, a pencil drain to ligate that lobe of liver, which looks horrendous. Um, and then there's the laparoscopically-assisted mini-alps, where you go down just through about two centimeters of liver all the way along, because that's where the collaterals develop, and you make sure they don't cross over, and you ligate the portal vein. And then this third variation is that, but you don't ligate the portal vein, you then embolize the portal vein a few days later. There are lots of variations. Some centers are really keen on it. We've done a fair number, about 15 now in total. We're not overly keen on it. We use it if we need to. I think it's a procedure that gets you out of jail intraoperatively when you're in trouble. I think doing it electively, still, it hasn't convinced me. So what's the difference then between the ALPS procedure and the classic two-staged hepatectomy? Well, I think two-staged hepatectomy relies on the fact that there's an extraordinary oncologist that's going to give chemotherapy during the two stages. And again, we've done two-stage hepatectomies in some patients, but the majority never get to the second stage because of disease progression. Because surgery is very misoppressive. There's lots of hepatotrophic factors during the resection. So what you leave behind will start to grow. And you've got to get in with the chemotherapy. So if you have any complication, if you have a bile leak, there's no chance you're going to get chemotherapy for weeks and weeks and weeks. And those lesions will get out of control. And there's just no way you can salvage it. So I've totally lost lost interest in two-stage hepatectomies. So is it fair to say that uh, the mortality rate is higher for an ALPS procedure compared to a two-stage hepatectomy, but the risk of dropout due to tumor progression is higher? With yeah, a, the majority two of two-stages of dropout is very high. And, and also you've got to leave enough FLR and you could end up leaving segment four and the cordate lobe. And 
you know, that's a very risky thing to do. What about combining resection with local ablative therapies? Well, I, mean, I think for cytoreduction, for example, in neuroendocrine disease, that's become standard of care. You get a blade, you'd resect, you do a bit of both. You could ablate and resect the same lesion. Uh, for colorectal mets, it hasn't been that popular because it was either resection or ablation. But actually, you could what you could do is ablate some lesions and resect others. And there was only a decent study that was ever done on ablation. It was called the clock trial. And it was doing just that. But they assessed the cases lesion by lesion, but they resected some of the patients and ablated some and did a combination in some. Um, and that does work, and we do it quite often. So does it affect the survival rate if you do add an ablation? Well, again, it's taken 15 years to show that ablation is beneficial for patients, but there has never been a proper randomized controlled trial comparing patients who got ablated to those who didn't. So if you took patients and resected them and did some ablation versus people who you tried to resect everything, there's never been that trial done. So we've never compared ablation to surgery in colorectal meds. It has been done in HCC and shows equivalence for small lesions. But you're talking about lesions that have to be two centimeters or less. But ablating a margin to get a negative margin that's done quite often, but again, it's not evidence-based. So the first question was resection for small lesions versus ablation, and there's no clear evidence there, but you're saying that if you add the two together to try and achieve more clearance, so you resect but also ablate the margins or resect and ablate a tiny little lesion yeah. on the surface, then that is possible. Yeah. And is there evidence that... I think that's, a, that's acceptable to do, but the evidence, again, is... There's not randomized data. There are some case series. There's some cohort studies, but that's it. Okay, speaking of these peripheral, easily accessible lesions, I'm going to ask you a controversial question now. Um, what is your take on anatomical versus non-anatomical resections? You know, a little lesion could just scoop out compared to resecting a whole section or segment. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think if you... If you can do an anatomical resection, that's what you should do. I think that's that's far better long-term survival. Have we ever subjected metastectomies to a randomized trial? Never. So going and whipping around a metastasis has never shown, there's never been shown to be any benefit. And, and also because you get intrasegmental transmission of disease to the veins, to the arteries, it sits in the bile duct. So if you just whip around a tumor, you could be leaving cells behind that you don't know anything about. We all do it, and wherever you go in the world, you will have people doing metastectomies. Can they do it as a segmentectomy? Well, I would prefer to do it as a segmentectomy rather than say, well, we've got a bit of, let's take a centimeter margin around it. But because there's no evidence, randomized evidence, you have to say, that I can't say one way or another. But if I had my option, I would always try and do it anatomically. So either segmentectomy or sectionectomy or lobectomy. Okay, and I'm still going to try and be a bit more controversial here. Yes, there haven't been any randomized trials, but does this not go against what you said earlier about it's what 
you leave behind that's important. So, you know, there have been retrospective studies that show that if you do a limited or panchymal preserving resection, then your chances of doing a further salvage procedure in the future, which is resectable, yeah, is higher. We we're talking about two different things here. Mm -hmm. The consensus meeting in 2006 was about resectability. And resectability was what you leave behind, absolutely. And that was about survival. That was about preventing liver failure post-resection. It's not about survival um, for recurrence. For recurrence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if your starting point is, let's take out just the tumor so that we can go back and reoperate, mm -hmm. that seems wrong to me. What you want to do is get the best chance of a long-term survival. If taking out lesions is preserving liver, liver function, that's different. So if you're worried about volume and you just want to take out the lesions and say, well, let's leave enough liver behind, and you've got chemotherapy available and you know what you're going to do to try and get long-term survival, that's fine. But I think the two things are different. Okay. Another common question, it's not just for FRCS exams, it's just general surgeons asking repeatedly, when would you go for a liver-first procedure or a, a primary colonic resection first or a simultaneous resection? Is there a clear guideline no. here? There isn't, no. I think simultaneous is easy. If you've got a lesion in the rectum and you've got a large lesion in the right lobe, that should not be done simultaneously. So the rules for simultaneous, I think, I think most people, most centers follow this, is that if the liver's big, the colon must be small in terms of procedure. And if the, the colon's big, the liver must be small in terms of procedure. So, so combining two... lateral and rectum, or a right hemicolectomy and a right hepatectomy. But if you combine two big operations, mm. you get two big complications. Yeah, okay. um, in terms of the other question... Well, um, so when would you when would you do a when would you resect the liver first, for example, and leave the primary? If the liver's if the liver's running away with you, if you're mm. worried that by the time you get the primary out, deal with the leak, which could happen, and get adjuvant chemotherapy, the liver will have grown, then you should do the liver first. And I don't think there's any I mean chemotherapy if you give palliative chemotherapy and the, the colon will respond then just do the liver first. Because that's the, the liver is the critical thing. That's going to determine the outcome, not the colon. Okay, I presume these patients will have small volume colonic disease that's asymptomatic. And so, you you know... Yeah, once they've been treated with chemo, the, the primary just shrinks away mm. most of the time. Speaking of chemo, we've come a long way, haven't we, over the last, what, 30 years or so? Um, just going back to when it was uh, monotherapy with 5-FU, yeah. Um, which I think ended around the turn of the century, and we started using uh, dual chemotherapy with 5-FU plus oxaliplatin or irinotecan. I think there was Lucavorin first, and the Lucavorin trial did make a big difference compared to 5-FU on its own. But then, yeah, oxaliplatin came in, and then irinotecan, and they both came in together. And then there were the monoclonals, and now we don't we don't use bevacizumab, um, but we do use cetuximab for the KRAS wild type patients. There's also the BRAF 600V patients who do really badly long term, but in terms of monoclonals, we don't have a specific monoclonal for them yet. Okay, so 
thinking about preoperative chemotherapy, it sounds like a great idea. You think, you know, it's going to reduce potentially the tumor size and the extent of surgery that you're going to need. It's going to treat those micrometastases that you can't see and potentially reduce recurrences and, 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 and guide further treatment strategies based on, on, on the response. So is there a controversy here yeah. or should everyone just have no, no, there is a controversy because again, there's no, there's no evidence. The EPOC study didn't show benefit in giving patients sandwich chemotherapies preoperative and then operated in post-op. There is no evidence that giving chemotherapy upfront makes a difference to long-term outcome to everybody, and that study needs to be done. But I just think that if you look at the history, if you take breast cancer as a good example of how they've moved on so far with chemotherapy and surgery has just become less important. In the old days, Halstead took out half the body trying to cure breast cancer. And now the operation is a a day case Mm. and the rest is all based on systemic therapy. And I can't see how colorectal metastasis is any different. And I believe, personally, this is my personal belief, that if you don't treat patients with chemotherapy up front, you possibly do them a disservice because there's no way that operating on the liver alone will deal with all those metastases. How did it get to the liver in the first place and got there via the lymphatics or the veins? And have we treated any of that in transit disease? If we just go and straight away and operate, we haven't. So I think the study needs to be done. I'm too old and <laughs> Still some of you young bucks need to do it because <laughs> that's the study that needs to be done. So... I suppose what you're aiming for here, if you do go for preoperative chemotherapy, and I'm calling it preoperative as opposed to neoadjuvant because you don't know whether you are going to end up operating uh, at the end. Um, I suppose what you're looking for is to induce resectability as opposed to a complete response to chemotherapy. So yeah. this, this treatment should be as short as, as, as possible. Now, we use Folfox, I think, at this stage. Um, I think it depends on... The oncologist, some of them use different T-cans. Yeah, so Folfox or Folfox. Just some of the guidelines around this. There has to be regular assessment with imaging to make sure there is a response. Otherwise, you have to switch to the second-line uh, chemotherapeutic regime. Um, Most oncologists do three, after three cycles, they'll assess. And this response will continue until they get to six cycles and then assess with the surgeon to say, are they resectable yet? And if not, they carry into nine cycles. Most people won't go beyond 12. I mean, but there are patients on cetuximab, for example, who've been on for years mm. and who controls their disease really well. And if, you, you know, if you've reassessed and you've found that it's, you've now converted disease into resectable disease, you obviously can't just go in and operate. You do have to wait. A yeah, for, so you need at least a month. Before when, you... when we used bevacizumab, which is a VEGF receptor antagonist, that did have an increased risk of bleeding, and so we, we left it a little bit longer. But most people will be happy with waiting a month. So that applies, and you can see the benefit for unresectable colorectal liver metastases. What's your stance on resectable disease? Would you still go for preoperative chemotherapy? Well, that's what we spoke about earlier. That's where the controversy is. Do you give everyone the resectable disease chemotherapy up front? That's what happens with breast cancer. Everyone gets chemotherapy. If you've got someone who's got a T3 rectal lesion 
with a threatened margin, they will get local chemotherapy. But say they have two lesions in their liver, we don't do anything about that. We say, well, we'll check them later on. But what we do in our centers, is anyone who's got synchronous disease will get chemotherapy up front. We'll not resect anyone who will have had it. And I think our five-year survival of 53% is pretty good based on that. And we see a lot of synchronous disease. So I think it is beneficial. But you are exposing these to the added risk of a chemotherapy liver. And on the other hand, am I right in saying that there isn't actually any evidence out there to suggest that the long-term survival is different? No, there's no evidence. But don't let's make chemotherapy liver such a big problem. In practical terms, it's very seldom that you end up with a problem unless you have steatohepatitis. Steatohepatitis is bad news and results in a lot of mortality. But SRS and steatosis doesn't. So when we talk about stuximab or panitimumab, the new EPOC trial has actually suggested that progression-free survival was actually worse with cetuximab. Now, that's quite a surprising result, isn't it? You'd expect these EGFR inhibitors to at least be equivocal, if not better, in terms of survival. Um, Does that mean we we can no longer recommend giving a monoclonal antibody pre-operatively? I'm not sure what the New York trial really showed. It's very confusing, the results from that trial. I think we still use cetuximab. We use it for KRAS wild-type patients. It hasn't done them a disservice. I know that a lot of people felt that the data that it came from was also it was also serendipitous data. They just data-mined until they found something positive in that study. But it's through the test of time. It's worth mentioning that there is a recent meta-analysis which does suggest a high response rate with biological agents. And just for those taking the FRCS exam soon, there's the ongoing Perimax trial, which uh, compares uh, standard Folfox adjuvant chemotherapy to perioperative bevacizumab and Folfoxiri, so your, your triple regime uh, therapy, and we'll await the results of that yeah, trial but soon. That, that kind of regime is not, not allowed to be used in this, the UK currently, but be an interesting result. Because actually, bevacizumab, the evidence that it made any difference was so poor that NICE took it off the formulary. So, okay, well, is there a role then for adjuvant chemotherapy after colorectal liver metastasis resection? I don't think there's evidence for it, so most oncologists wouldn't give it. Again, the EPOC trial, not the new one, the old one, didn't show benefit, so... No one uses it. We don't give that here. No. Okay. Although sometimes we like to sandwich chemotherapy between, you know, surgery is is the the cheese and the bread. Um, it's quite difficult to convince a lot of oncologists to do that. Um, just heading to more obscure territory here, things that we don't use very often in this country. Hepatic artery infusion, so local chemotherapy. Now, in the past, we used things like uh, floxuridine or oxaliplatin, and there was some benefit there, but there was also the added toxicity uh, involved. Do you see a future in this prof, given that they're now introducing, you know, more advanced chemotherapy like uh, Folfoxiri? Granted, you said that we don't use that here. 
but as a local infusion uh, with the addition of systemic cetuximab, people are publishing more and more evidence that that actually helps. Uh, well, well, you say we didn't use arterial infusion, but we did. And um, actually, I was too young. You're too young. Glasgow, Glasgow spearheaded this for many years, and the oncologist they called Taylor, who did a lot of hepatic artery infusion. And in fact, there are still some people around who still do that and still believe it's beneficial. The problem is they use drugs like mitomycin C. The the new artery infusion, which we've used quite a lot of in our center, is the berry taste, and that's irritancy can attach to beads, um, which are injected by the hepatic artery. Again, the evidence for that is poor. There have been no randomized trials. It's quite a long course. It's given over three treatments. It's quite painful. And the indication compared to radioembolization, we're still looking for. But we have used it in some patients, and they have benefited. But again, this all needs proper randomized trials with good controls, and that's cost a lot of money to do. But I suspect this would be something reserved as end-of-line treatment for someone who hasn't responded to your classic systemic uh, chemotherapy. Yeah, and that's probably the, the downfall of a lot of these treatments because they, you, they, they're being used very late and you'll never find the true group of patients who respond. I think CERT in the, in the colorectal treatment option that we did with the CTE where we gave it after failed second-line chemotherapy, that has really put cert back a lot because it's the wrong indication, the wrong patient group. Um, because cert has some fantastic results if it's used in the right setting. And it's worth mentioning here that portal vein uh, infusion has been looked into in the past. And even though the hepat- risk of hepatotoxicity is lower, uh, there isn't really much evidence to show that it has any survival yeah. advantage. Um so you did mention earlier the molecular profiling, KRAS and, and BRAF mutations, um, as a way to stratify those high-risk patients, Prof. Um, just clarify to me again, um, how do these I, the identification of these mutations guide treatment that you would give? Well, I think the mutations can work in a number of ways for or against the patients. You could, always, you could say if you've got a BRAF mutation, then your chance of doing well is really poor and you should be treating patients very conservatively so they can get on with their lives rather than subjecting them to massive surgery that is going to result in poor outcome. Or you could say if you know you've got the mutation, let's be as aggressive as possible. I mean, those are the ways you can use it. At the moment, I think we're still feeling our way. The KRAS we've used with... And very successfully with cetuximab, I think. Um, and we've used cetuximab and salvaged some patients in that group. The BRAF, we know, is bad prognosis. And we're still not sure what to do with that information. They're still getting the same treatment. It's just, are you able to prognosticate better for the patient? Do the patient want to know? You've got a bad mutation and you're going to do badly, even though we're going to chop off your liver out. I mean, do they really want to know that? Would I want to know that as a patient? So I think we need to decide what we're doing with this information. If we've got something good to treat them with, and you could make a difference. For example, 
guest tumors and glyvac. There's a massive success story. Knowing you've got the CKIT mutation, knowing you've got dog one, you can change patients' lives. But I'm not sure we at that point with this yet. This is more palliative territory, really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. So if you find a KRAS mutation or any evidence of anti-EGFR resistance, you'd be looking more at things like pivacizumab, presume, rather yeah, than... Yeah, but rather, at the moment, we can't do that. No. And finally, Prof, and I know this is still experimental, but it's a, it's a topic that's uh, dear to both of our hearts, um, liver transplantation. Yeah. So well, uh, hopefully, in the near future, we'll be opening a, a new avenue for those patients who have unresectable colorectal liver metastases. Yeah, I, that's absolutely correct. And I think, um, I think following the success of Norwegian data... The SECA-1 um, trial... Well, second one, second two, mm. sounds like a song. Quite a few um, seconds. <laughs> uh, that um, we are looking at it now as a community in the UK. The fantastic review written by Emma et al. Um, on the topic. <laughs> <Are> they- <laughs> reviews it really well. Um, I think this, the, if you stick to the, to the Oslo criteria, you can get some good outcomes. And the criteria are based on a number of things, but size is important. And um, yeah, I think we need to we need to progress this. There are patients who would benefit, and you know it's a balance between transplanting an alcoholic who could potentially be recidivist versus a young patient with colorectal mates who's got no other option. But what we don't want to do is use livers inadvertently to transplant people who've got no survival. So you have to follow the guidance. And the guidance is well documented in the paper by Emma et al. Or shameless promotion of our uh, <laughs> new publication. Um, so we'll just have to watch that space then. Um, Professor Manis, thank you very much for your time today. I've absolutely enjoyed every minute of this. Thank you. And I love the peppermint tea. Thank you very much. <laughs> no problem. My pleasure. Join us again for another episode of Scrubcast in due course. Until then, thank you very much and goodbye. Did I tell you this guy knocked on my door the other day? Three foot, three inches. I said, uh, who are you? So I'm the meter man. <laughs>